Hello and welcome to the Madison Story Slam podcast. I am your host, Adam Rosted. Uh, we have another episode of the Long Slam where we're sitting down with Bartlett Durand, who is the owner of Conscious Carnivore and Black Earth Meats. Black Earth Meats recently had to close down uh, due, due to some controversy uh, that you'll hear about in this episode. They have a Kickstarter campaign right now called Save Black Earth Meats. Uh, if you go on to Kickstarter and check that out, there's a lot of cool rewards that you can get uh, by helping them out. We talk about a lot of things. We talk about Buddhism. We talk about meat, obviously. And we talk about uh, living in Hawaii. Um, be sure to come to Story Slam on Friday, November 28th. And here's Bartlett. Your table. I mean, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. The something we can talk about, I guess, just where we're sitting and why it's important. So this is a fundamental theme of what we're doing here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I started recording. I, I don't. Uh, oh, there you go. Hell is rise. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, welcome to the Long Slam on Madison Story Slam. We're here with uh, Bartlett Durand, who is the owner. Yes. Owner of Black Earth Meats and Conscious Carnivore, Carnivore here yes. in Madison. Technically, I'm the managing member. There are you see, eight, I was... or eight or nine investors okay. who all in. So. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you know what? I don't have any agenda today. I know that you are doing a Kickstarter campaign right now. That's right. Um, so let's start with you talking just a little bit, a bit about that, why it's happening, and, and what it's doing. Wow. There is a story. Uh, <laughs> well, right. good, because we're it's, the Story Slam podcast. The, the, there you go. Um well, to, to cut cut it short, and then we'll come back to it. It's yeah, you know, it's on Kickstarter. It's called Save Black Earth Meats because through the village's action, the village of Black Earth action, uh, the village board, our financing was destroyed, which then destroyed our business. And what we had done is created this really unique local ecosystem um, that had really made great strides. And that's what we'll come back to. But in order to maintain any aspect of that ecosystem, uh, we need to preserve the equipment. And the bank is getting ready to auction the equipment off. Yeah. So the Kickstarter is there is to get the community to come in and help us buy that equipment back from the bank so we can put the pieces of Humpty Dumpty back together again. Sure. So that's the, the shorthand. So it's Kickstarter Save Black Earth Meats. The long story... Yeah. <laughs> um, so Black Earth Meats was, or is, well, was, I guess it's not really functioning right now, mm -hmm. uh, one of the first and only USDA-inspected, meaning federally inspected, animal welfare-approved, humane certification, uh, and certified organic small-scale slaughter plants in the Midwest, if not the country. Sure. And what we really did is we took one of these old country cutters that still dot the landscape of, of Wisconsin, not so much the country, um, that's, that do the butchering for small family farms. Okay. And usually, well, traditionally what these were, family would raise a beef, a couple hogs for its own use to get through the year. And yep. there are all these, you know, farm families were everywhere. And so this was the local butcher. And then in about the 40s, early 50s, commercial refrigeration became possible, but it was very expensive. So these butcher shops, instead of just being the guy who killed and cut it up, killed and cut it up, and then put it in what was called a meat locker. It was basically just, we would just see this giant walk-in freezer. I mean, yeah. we, we get really casual about our technology now, but sure. it was a really stable. It was a big deal. It was a big freezer, and they literally had lockers in it, almost like at your gym, right? Mm -hmm. you know, this little locker, and you would put your meat in there, and then as you need meat, every couple days you'd come and pull your meat out from the animals you had stored. 
and that's what you see these old meat lockers all around. My favorite one's in Gay's Mills because it's just this hmm. really cool old school meat locker that's yeah. just amazing. Um, as the farm demographics changed, especially in the 70s, 80s, 80s and 90s, I guess, well, one, everybody had home freezers, so you went back to just being the butcher instead of having the meat locker as a, a side. But those farm families got fewer and fewer, mm-hmm. you know, especially in here in Dane County, you know, we got very urbanized, and everybody became a bedroom community, essentially. And then the families that were still farming got smaller and smaller. So instead of having 10 kids, 11 kids on the farm, you had a couple, and they're getting off the farm as soon as they can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the need for the butcher started decreasing. So these little butcher shops, these little meat lockers, really started declining uh, in economic viability, just from the demographics. So when I moved back uh, to the area in 2006, I started working with the family farm. The family's farm is Otter Creek Organic Farm. Okay. And we started a cheese, and we're doing really well with the cheese. But as part of the cheese, I realized there was this growing demand for locally grown, I call them clean meats. Now, this is before grass-fed was a term, but meats from pasture, meats what we now call grass-fed, no antibiotics, no hormones, and organic. Sure. So we started marketing those. We're doing really well. And the butcher shop we're using in Black Earth was not doing well. Hmm. I mean, it's, even though our business was pretty strong, most of his other business was gone. Uh, and again, mostly we'll call it the demographics. Yeah. So we stepped in and purchased it because he was going to close it. And that's where we the idea was, well, we can't just be a meat locker. We can't rely entirely on all the small farmers and it's the seasonality. It's a very seasonal thing. It's almost like deer hunting, right? Sure, yeah. So these lockers really survive on two things. One, the fall harvest. Mm-hmm. People, all, you know, just naturally the animals, if you just let them go, they kind of come to harvest and fall. For two reasons. One, that's usually 18 months to two years of life in, and these guys don't want to feed them over the winter. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, hey, it's, you know, like right now it's snowing outside. Hey, that's great. It's a good time to go in and get this thing yeah. dropped down. Yeah. Um, and then, like I said, the deer processing is a huge cash business for these guys. So they really rely on that. But those do two things. One, that means all your labor needs are in the fall, mm-hmm. and all your money comes in the fall, and then you suck wind for nine months out of the year, and then you come back. So it's this weird thing. Yeah, the cycle. So we wanted to change the cycle and really start catering. While we continued that work, we wanted to cater to restaurants and retail um, that wanted this farm connection. Yeah. And that's what we started providing. And there are plenty of farms that try to do it, but the problem if you're a farm is... You know, restaurant A just wants tenderloin, restaurant B wants ribeye, sure. restaurant C wants ground beef, and you're having to part and piece it out, and you've got one animal at a time. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Like, our issue at the first retailer where we were, they wanted, I think it was one animal a week, one hog a week. Well, animals don't really grow like they kind of come in spurts. Yeah. So it's very difficult to keep a clean, consistent supply and the quality up when you're just one farm. Sure. And so we got, especially if you want fresh meat. So we got around that by, as Black Earth Meats, aggregating, which just, you know, gathering from a lot of small farms. And we grew to be over 200, 220 farms that wow. we were buying from. And that was one of the more exciting things is seeing these small farms able to start growing because they knew they had a reliable outlet. Yeah. That was a really cool thing that was really 
I mean, it was intended, but not a focus. But then it it just made you realize how connected we all are. The fact that yeah. we had a good customer that's saying, hey, I need so much ground beef. Now we could tap into more farms. They know they have that supply. It just It's a feedback loop. Absolutely. And it was amazing. Um, so basically our sales, once we started this, our sales at Black Earth Meats as a company doubled essentially every year. Mm-hmm. And it meant we had to increase our efficiency. So we did that through, uh, obviously, more bodies. So we actually got up to 47, 48 people working yeah. uh, at one point and got up to about 150 beef a week. And that was through our own accounts, and we started doing micro uh, micro packing, I call it, for other people who needed this service. Sure. They needed the slaughter done and the basic priming, but they didn't have a packing or a, a place to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we really started growing well. Now, let, let me explain two things. Yeah. Are you with me so far? Absolutely. Just, yeah. Okay. I guess the first thing, what we did that's very different from a packing house, a small packing house uh, will do 1,500 to 2,000 beef a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them do like to do four to 5,000 a day. Wow. And those numbers are just mind-boggling. I mean, they're these huge, huge structures. They're usually out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And they're very industrialized, meaning it's all based around the equipment. So mm-hmm. the equipment comes first, and then you put the bodies in to run the equipment. So it's a labor industrial model. Sure. So you don't have butchers anymore. You have labor. And what I and, and the when they do that, I mean it's extremely efficient. Mm-hmm. But they start having to change the biology to match the machines. Oh sure. So so beyond the psychology of the people working there, which I mean, there's an average seven month turnover, which if you can imagine how yeah. how bad that must be. Um, but they literally start talking about cloning and the genetics yeah. and things like that because they want all animals to be essentially the same, the same. size mm-hmm. so it matches all the machines coming through. Sure. When you drop down in scale, you lose that efficiency, at least at the level where we are, but you have greater flexibility with the type of animals coming in. Mm-hmm. So we have the animals uh, with horns. Yeah. You know, and we have the animals that are big and the animals that are small. We have some animals that are tiny. I mean, there's things called Dexters that at full grown, they're 500 pounds, where a normal steer walking in can be 1,400 pounds. Sure. I mean, huge variability. But if it's humans doing it, you just adjust. Yeah. And that's that's a big thing I really started getting into is what I call this human scale of, you know, I don't need to be doing 5,000 a day. I don't ever want to do 5,000 a day. But by using my skilled butchers with tools. Mm-hmm. So now the tools are there to help the people, not the people to use yeah. the tools, right? Yeah. Um, we really changed this whole focus of what we could do. Mm-hmm. And that became this whole thing in and of itself, that human scale. The other thing we're really big on, um, and, and it's becoming a buzzword, and they always bother me when they do that, but um, the humane handling. Yep. Like, I mean, I just saw that Butterball Turkey is claiming to be humane because they got somebody to say they're humane. With. Sure. And generally what they do is they go through industry standards and say, oh, that's a humane practice, that's a humane practice from what they're doing already. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whatever. We actually <laughs> we actually went out and we, we found animal welfare approved that is the most, I don't know if I want to say extreme, but the most intense about the, the handling practices yeah. with a scientific background. There are other humane programs that are more touchy-feely but they don't really have the science behind what they're doing, where animal welfare approved really got behind the science. Yeah. And so we got them in, and they, they trained us and got our certification for how we handled. 
And then I actually went to Bristol, England for training to get my animal welfare officer training. Sure. So I'm actually one of, what, 12 people in the United States who's a European Union certified animal welfare officer, which is yeah. kind of cool. But, yeah, absolutely. You know, but I learned all the science behind this. And so what we're doing, it, it gives you a better quality meat mm -hmm. just because you don't get the stress hormones released that start chewing into the fat of the sure. fight and flight response going. Um, but from my own side of things, what we really focused on through that prism of the animal handling was how we treat each other. Yeah. And what I, my personal belief is when we, people are talking about how we treat animals, how we treat, you know, whether it's the dog and the cat or, you know, the stray dog or the, the kind processing or humane handling, what we're really talking about is a substitute for we ourselves don't feel well cared for. Yeah. And that's become this real driver for me. And so when we started the Conscious Carnivore, as, as you look around here. That's where we are. That's where we are, that, the yeah, Conscious Carnivore. Yep. Um, it's about education. It's about connection. It's mm -hmm. about really just having a nice relationship with each other. Yeah. So we talk about we don't have customers. I don't want customers coming in. I mean, sure. I, I want everybody to come in, but yeah. <laughs> I, I want, we, we're all about building a relationship because yeah. there is nothing more sacred than sitting down with food and sharing a meal with someone and having a conversation. Absolutely. So, Adam, you and I should have food in front of us. I, really? You know, I thought I thought about it. I, <laughs> I I normally have a beer with the uh -oh. person that I'm with, but well, it's, there, there's beer right here. I got we can it, we got our beer license. You know, I maybe maybe halfway through. I okay. still have to go to work today. Oh <laughs> man, you're killing me. It's I mean, my like, first day at Costco, so, which oh, I'm okay. actually kind of bummed about. Oh, like, yeah. So if you know anybody who's looking for somebody to do other, anything other than Costco... Okay, you're know, the man. Yeah, that's you're right. The, well, Rhonda and I, personally, we call it our personally curated beer selection. Yeah. I, we, I mean, it's a pretty good selection. Yeah. I don't know about Spotted Cow anymore. Really? What's wrong I, with Spotted I, Cow? I like a lot of New Glarus's other stuff. You know, it was just that Spotted Cow became so big. Oh, yeah. I actually call it the, the Miller Light of good it, beers now. It is. Oh, yeah. no, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. Um... There's uh, is it most Wisconsin stuff that you have in here? It is. We got a little bit of Michigan that snuck in, and I got the dogfish head sure. um, down there because I mean, how can you not? I yeah. mean, the Midas Touch is the one that really turned me on to the stories behind the beer. Yeah. Um, you know the story behind Midas Touch? No, right? I don't. Oh, you don't? No. Oh, I read about it in an archaeology magazine. Okay. There's an archaeologist who. Just, Wait, did they find a recipe? I do know yeah, this story. It's from yeah. like ancient Minoa or wherever, where they said King Midas was. Yeah. And they did the spectro. Photography, whatever they call it, that where they they scan it and they find the chemical composition left yeah. in these vases, yeah, and they recreated the rest. So they figure out everything that was in it, sure. the ingredients, and they went to these guys who are their local master brewers and said, "Hey, what do you think?" And so yeah, it's the most unusual drinking experience ever. Interesting. It's like a cross between a mead and a beer. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I just I, I love mead. Yeah, mead is. I'm really Norwegian. Okay, so uh, not that I had that growing up. I I actually my family's religious. I, my dad's a pastor. My grandpa was a pastor. Okay. So there wasn't, like, my dad drank beer growing up, but my grandpa never would. That would, that would yeah, so didn't have that growing up. Right, Are well, you religious at all? No. no. Well, I mean, I'm, as they say, I'm very spiritual. I'm sure. Not, so I'm, I'm Buddhist. Sure. Um, and there's not a Sangha is the name of the church for a mm -hmm. Buddha thing. So I'm, um, I'm a practicing Buddhist. Mm -hmm. 
but I don't have a place to go. So sure. we have a home home yeah. dojo that we practice in. That's why the, the uh, one guy uh, gave me the nickname the Zen Butcher. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that online yeah, a lot. That's yeah. There's a little documentary about that, and it was really about how I took my beliefs. And I was vegetarian for 18 years, hmm. but in a very open-eyed way. Yeah. Um, it was about the inhumane treatment of animals and the factory farming and all sure. that and the health and different things. Um, but when we were in India, we were doing very intensive yoga, meditation, and martial arts, and our bodies started breaking down because we weren't getting good protein. Yeah. Which is a whole other long story that's in the Zen Butcher. Anybody <laughs> wants to look it up. Um, but we started eating fish, mm-hmm. and our bodies instantly were healing. I mean, like within a day, we were yeah. like feeling amazing. Yeah. Uh, and then when we moved back here, rather than shipping in fish, when we lived in Hawaii, it was easy to get good fish. Sure. You know, it's harder to get good ocean fish, although now we've got some here at the carnivore. But um, yeah. I was looking at the animals on our family farm. And, I mean, they literally live better than 99% of humans. Sure. And they live in their family group. They got outdoor access all the time and they're exercise. They have a vet who comes and visits them once or twice a month. Um, they extremely well fed with mm-hmm. good, nut- all organic food, and good nutrition. I mean, it's this amazing little thing. Yeah. And it was kind of like, wow. And, and this sounds so weird, but you know, it's like I, I remember looking at him once, going, "I can eat you." Yeah. <laughs> and it was, but it was just, it was. My wife's an ecologist, so we've had these discussions about ecology. I'm like, we are, part, if we are part of the world, mm-hmm. you know, we are meat eaters. Now, yeah, I know the vegans and vegetarians can always say, but you don't have to. It's like, well, in our modern society, yes, of course, you know, you don't have to, but yeah. for proper nutrition and health, it is my belief you need the animal fats. Mm-hmm. But healthy animal fats. Yeah. And, but there's this whole thing of distaste, and I think it really stems from our CAFOs, the confined or concentrated animal feeding operations and the feedlots and the uh, giant slaughterhouses that we don't want to think about anymore. And yeah. so we disconnect from that. But then there's this sense of wanting to be connected, which is, you know, every package of food you see has a nice little farm on it. Like, yep. that's the way it's coming from, right? But so there's this yearning to return because we know we're not connected. Yeah. And so for me, meat is the central place where you can't hide from it anymore. And that's why the carnivore, the conscious carnivore here, if you walk in, um, it's, you'll see it's really designed around education. So we have the big table where we're sitting, this giant butcher table. It's designed around classes. Mm-hmm. There's a meat rail hanging above us with yeah. the hooks. Yeah. So you can't hide from it. No. And, I was actually noticing that yeah. when I came in. I was and like, it, oh, wow. Right. And in the back, there's the cooler there where we have hanging beef and hanging hogs and lambs that Dave will break down in the open for everyone to see every day. Yeah. And when we do the classes, the hog or the beef comes right up on the table and we drop it down and yeah. people have to do it themselves. And so we don't want it in your face, but mm-hmm. we don't want it hit. And so that's really, this whole thing is, you know, the basic sense of all of this is bringing community together to reconnect through food. Yeah. And that food needs to be good and part of the story. Yeah. And so every change. One of the other big things, I guess, that happened along the way, I kind of got irritated. I'm, I mean, I love my chefs. I mean, the chefs are amazing people. Yeah. And I, I get a little saddened by this sense that you know chefs become rock stars because those guys have to work every day and they're working 60 hour weeks and crazy hours and all that Absolutely. but they're treated like this crazy rock star and it's like or they're just nice people who are cooking out rocking food I mean mm-hmm. do we need to make them a celebrity but you know whatever it is but so there's you get the chefs their treatment and then they start connecting with farms which is great and in vegetables is much easier but 
and all of a sudden the farmer starts rising up in this kind of celebrity status like sure. ooh the farmer the farmer the farmer which if you've met many farmers they generally don't want to be that they want to be left alone but <laughs> that's why they're farmers <laughs> that's, that's why they're farmers um but then everyone is tending to ignore what happens in the middle. Mm. And you need a skilled... I mean, there's, there's something, especially like I said with animals, but it happens with other things. Any processing is really the connection between that consumer, the chef and the people eating at the table, and the farmer. Yeah. Very little goes straight from farm to the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you know, some vegetables and all, but even that, they're usually processing a little bit on farm. So that processor should be the meeting place. Mm -hmm. And that's what really started getting my juices flowing over the idea of honoring the butcher, bringing that trade back into prominence. Yeah. Uh, When we took over, butcher was still a pejorative. You know, you think about it. Oh, you butchered that language. You oh, uh, sure, yeah. Right, and it's like, you know, and even the um, the union, they don't call them butchers, the butchers union, they're the meat cutters union. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's this weird thing where it's like, oh, slaughterman, like slaughter, the word slaughter, all that. It's like this this really negative, Man, dark I, thing. I've never felt that way. Like, I, I know Dave. I, I yeah. grew up with Dave. Okay. Uh, he was in my brother, he graduated with my brother. Okay. Um, and I've known he's a butcher, and I'm just always like, that's so cool. Like, like to me, that that name is yeah. that title is cool. Well, see, this is a you're obviously younger than me. You're in a generational <laughs> shift. But, that's but true. See, this is what I mean. And, and Dave's a perfect. So Dave's our butcher, our master butcher here. Mm-hmm. Dave Gothy for anybody. Dave Gothy, right? So he went away and became a butcher out of high school, and everyone thought he was crazy. Yeah. I mean, it was not what you do coming out of high school. I mean, it's like a failure. It's like. You're, you're giving get, up. Almost. You're giving up, yeah. right? I was like, "What the hell are you talking about?" But now, we through this food revolution we're in, and it's really this desperation to reconnect with food. Now people are like, "Wow, who who's got those skills?" And there are so few guys like Dave, and we had a couple through the shop in Black Earth who were able to get the knowledge from basically two generations above them. Yeah, they are now the keepers of this knowledge. It's very rare. Yeah, and so that's why we're having to set up apprentice programs. That's why we have these classes going on because it's it's an unknown trade right now, mm-hmm. and a lot of chefs are trying to do it, which is I mean great and necessary, but they're doing it out of necessity. Sure, but they don't have the knowledge passed down master to apprentice like has happened for millennia yeah so what you'll see most chefs they will use an overhand grip on their knife because that's what they're that's how you cut vegetables and do cooking yeah that's the wrong way to do it when you're doing beef because it takes so much more muscle and you actually pull your shoulder out Hmm. so over time you'll ruin your shoulder by holding it that way where if you use the butcher's grip which we know from you know the movie halloween and things like that yeah that's designed because you're now using your whole back when you're cutting sure and you're able to get through the meat without ruining your body but that's funny because i think you know, you talk about people think of the word butcher as a pejorative. Even yeah. even that grip yeah. is barbaric. That's in right. my mind, I think like if I held a fork or a, just a butter knife like That's that, right. I'd be like, this is really barbaric. Like, That's right. And that is a pejorative in my mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it, and, but we've done that with all our trades. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, just like, you know, tech schools are this kind of thing you do if you don't make it to college. Like everybody, oh, everybody has to go to college. And it's like, well, why? Yeah. You know, it's like the most interesting, meaningful, intellectual jobs are the ones that you have to problem solve every day. And what happens is when you go through college and get more and more special, like I was an attorney, mm-hmm. you yeah. get more and more specialized. You get specialized. Well, then they want you to do that one thing. 
and then everything starts fitting that like oh I'm a tax specialist sure so I'm not doing murder cases I'm doing tax specialist mm-hmm. and so all you see are tax cases all day long and it becomes pretty cookie cutter and boring yeah but you make a lot of money but I mean so it's we have this weird sense in our world so this is where this again why they call me this in butcher a little bit I'm not what I'm really interested in are the systems that we've created around us mm-hmm. and how we've kind of ruined what it means to be human. Sure. And, you know, the basic pleasures and juiciness of life come from, well, it comes from our beer. It comes from laughing with friends. It comes over a meal. It comes from hard, honest work, work usually working with your hands or whatever, yeah. where you sweat and you have to think and you have to work in a small team. That's the ideal where people are happiest. Mm-hmm. But we've made all of that this, like, negative thing because... Everybody's trying to maximize the efficiency of capital. Mm-hmm. And that means putting big machines that you can plug anyone and pay them as little as possible. Yep. And it's this system that made sense at some point without necessarily understanding the consequences, but we've kind of gone too far. And so now we have a chance to claw it back, hmm. but we have to do it through this sense of community. Yeah. And again, so the Kickstarter, um, and, and this will get to the next thing, that for me is the first foray into crowdfunding. Yeah. Which I really believe is the salvation of this country. Absolutely. I, <clears throat> I agree 100%. There are so many people who disagree with that. Really? Who, like, well, <clears throat> there was some controversy. The actor Zach Braff. Do you know okay. him at all? No, uh, I don't. He had the movie, um, wow. He was on Scrubs. He was the main character on Scrubs. Anyway, Sorry. Yeah. Uh, he, he crowdfunded through Kickstarter his most recent movie, and people were like... You are an actor, a very successful actor, mm-hmm. who probably could have funded his own movie, but would have been would have taken a major hit. But people are like, "Why are you going through this channel where other actors are, you know, movie makers are going mm-hmm. through studios and sure. have people giving them money?" And, and, but that that's the thing. He's just having people give him money to do this, right. and they're getting stuff. Like, so I agree totally. Yeah. Other people think it's lazy. Well, there's... Okay, well, that's... I think this is the evolution we're seeing. So there's the Kickstarter, where when Kickstarter formed, you couldn't go out and ask people for money and give them something. Yeah. I mean, like a, a share in the company, because of yeah. the SEC rules. Yep. SEC is terrified you're going to steal money from grandma. Yeah. And... But the way it's worked is now... I mean, this... <laughs> I can walk down the street to, I don't know, Edward Jones or mm-hmm. whoever's around here and give them $100 and say, buy a share of Coca-Cola yeah. or buy a share of a fund. And that's fine. Yeah. I don't even know anything. I just tell them they sell it. And yep. That's fine. But I cannot walk next door to Wisconsin Cutlery mm-hmm. and say, hey, Bill, can I give you 100 bucks for a share in your company? Because the SEC would bust me. It would be totally illegal. Yeah. And it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Because Coca-Cola is just this thing out there, Pepsi or any of them, that is probably doing something I don't believe in. But that's the system that's set. Sure. But Bill next door probably could use some money and some help or some enthusiasm or whatever, but is not permitted to do it. But I know if I give him 100 bucks, he's going to work his ass off that I'm taken care of. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole... So there's this thing called slow money that's trying to fund the food system Mm -hmm. this way. Well, what's just happened in Wisconsin is we have this new crowdfunding law where it's going to enable you to raise up to a million dollars for a small company in Wisconsin from Wisconsin residents. Okay. And that's the, that's what, so the one complaint people have about Kickstarter is it's 
you know, they have to donate. Yeah. And you, know, you can offer rewards and all. So there's this weird valuation game. But it is fundamentally, it's like, hey, we need help. Yep. You're just giving money because you believe we're here. You yeah. believe in what we're doing. The next phase will be this crowdfunding where it's, I am raising a million dollars you or 500 or whatever it is. You will get, you know, so many shares of the company for your X amount payment. of dollars. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like you're, it's like a stock raise just at a very small scale. Sure. And that, and that means, so like we're looking at going into Milwaukee and it costs, I don't know, about $500,000 to really get one of these things up and, yeah. and cruising. Um, I don't know Milwaukee. Hmm. So it scares me to death going into Milwaukee. And so there are a couple of places we're looking at, but we, him and we haw. And because it's a lot of money to ask yeah. one or a couple of people. But if you get that community saying, we want you. Yeah. We need a shop like this here. It's like, well, let's find 500 people mm-hmm. and each of you put in $1,000. Yeah. Well, now you've got your money. So you've got a lower risk coming in. But more importantly, you have 500 people who have invested and mm-hmm. are going to share. Now you've got your built-in community. Yeah, and they're going to tell everybody. They're going to tell everyone. So that that's where I mean. I think as we find these things that are, and, and not, I mean, with respect to tech companies, not tech fly-offs or whatever, but like companies that really make a difference in their community, Yeah, I'm hoping we see that crowdfunding take place mm-hmm. where people are really supporting it with their dollars as well as their patronage. Like in uh, Mount Horeb, the poor butcher, sh- or the... Um, bookstore. They had a bookstore in Mount Horeb that was really cool mm-hmm. thing. He had to close down. He just mm. couldn't make it work anymore. Even yeah. though business was all right, it was just really him willing to work 80 hours. And, yeah. and so he's finally closing out. It's like, well, the community could. They say, you know, this bookstore enriches our community. So they could raise, uh, you know, several hundred thousand dollars among them just to have a bookstore yeah. there. And now they're each going to go by and patronize. Maybe that lifts that business. But that's what I mean. That's going to be a couple years down the road. But I think that's what we're going to see is if we can get everybody focused on it, that's where crowdfunding can come in. Right now, we're still at Kickstarter. Yeah. Next year, hopefully, we get to the crowdfunding. This Is it called CraftFund? I think CraftFund.com is the next one. And then pretty soon, it becomes a mainstream. Sure. Um, I, I... I keep coming back, listening to you, I keep coming back to the word connection. Yes. You know, you talk about uh, people want the connection to the animal and to the meat that they're eating. But I think that comes from people just longing for connection. Absolutely. I, we had we were in the Cap Times recently uh, for the Story Slam event, and uh, the reporter asked me why I thought people are drawn to storytelling events. It's, it's become a pretty big thing across the country. Yeah. Uh, the Moth is a big storytelling event. Um, and I said, I really think it just comes down to people wanting to be a part of something. They want that connection with something. And, um, but I, like, listen to you, it's across the board. It's, uh, you want a connection with your local, you know, buying local is a huge thing. Right. I don't know if that's a huge thing all over the country, but I know, like, in Madison and cities like that, it's really a huge it's, thing. It's growing. Yeah. And they want that connection with their local person. They want a connection to the meat being local, you know, farm to table. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really interesting, the, the connection thing. And then the crowdfunding, again, that's just all about connection. I want to be a part of something. Right. You know, and I think that's why that has been something that has really taken off in in many different ways. Uh, you know, music, movies, businesses, everything. Right. So I think that's really interesting. It is, and it's you know, I, I it's kind of a first world problem. I think. I mean, they talk about the happiest 
grouping is when you have a 120 person village. Sure. Because you run into everybody every day. You're all mutually dependent. You're all poor as hell, but yeah, you're all you got. Mm-hmm. And those they have this incredible support network there because of that. Mm-hmm. We're here. We can do anything. We can go anywhere. We can buy anything. I mean, you and I could say, you know what? We're we're fed up. Yeah. And throw out our credit cards and fly to Italy. Yeah. And boy, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, that we have the ability, but we could do it. <laughs> you know, because and now you have all these choices. So where is your actual community? Yeah. And that's and so you see that with the chat rooms, like people really latch on to really bizarre things to have their little sense of community. Yeah. But it really comes back to kind of old school. Casual conversations, running into each other, sharing a meal, yeah. just these little things over time that start building up. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I believe very strongly that there is this backlash by the new um, new generation coming up, especially. And I think we're my generation. I'm forty something, forty six, forty seven. Um, and we're on the cusp of it, but then you really drop it down where we've seen where everything became plastic and franchises and everything looking identical. Yeah. Anywhere you go looks kind of the same. And it is. There's this sense of complete just you're at sea. Yeah. And so if I'm at the wave, you know, you guys are coming in stronger. Of like, well, what's real? Mm-hmm. Where's the integrity? Yeah. Know, what, what does this stuff really mean? And not the spiritual, you know soul-searching kind of, but, like, yeah. I mean, what does this hamburger mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, just something as fundamental as that. Yeah. Because it, it's, it's made up. Now you got pink slime in it, and it's some factory process thing, and it, just, yeah. it, doesn't, even, it doesn't mean a hamburger anymore. Yeah. Now, now you have to figure out, well, is, there, is it real meat? <laughs> I mean, so that's what I mean. That's what we're dealing with, the absurdity of the world. And so that's where here, so much of what we do when we went through our planning, yeah, it's good meat and the local connection, but it's almost like a library where it's where you can learn to cook, you can learn about the animals, you can learn about the animal production, mm-hmm. um, and not in an in-your-face, I'm going to cram it down your throat, but just walk in, browse, yeah. and everything you touch has a story that can go as deep as you want to go, because that's what people are missing, Yeah. the, the truth and the integrity behind stuff. That's why we're the conscious carnivore, not the conscientious. A lot of people think it's conscientious carnivore, sure. which like, you know, we're holier than thou. It's like, no, no, no. We're con- we, I want you to wake up. Yeah. Have, have, get the knowledge. Get the knowledge. Just you know, be aware. I, I thought of that, what you were talking about, um, going back to Dave, going out of high school to become a butcher and getting that knowledge. And um, you, you referred to it, uh, you, earlier you, re- you used the word sacred. And, and I was just thinking knowledge is sacred. And, and so really, like, that, that story of Dave, like, getting knowledge passed down to him from somebody who got it passed down to him, that's such a sacred thing. Yeah. And that's such a cool thing that is lost in a lot of regards. Like, I mean, that's how you used to learn how to do something. Now that's you right. can go on YouTube right. and, and type in, how do I do this? And you can get, quote, unquote, taught. Right. And it's, it's mechanical. It's, it's an assembly line. That's right. There's uh, a lot of that across... The different industries and you know, with everything, you just kind of can get a very strong sense of what you're supposed to do because they tell you to do it. Mm-hmm. But it's the day-to-day practice and the muscle memory and yeah. someone. It's it's one thing like the tricks of the trade. And we all hear the tricks of the trade. Well, what the hell does that really mean? Yeah. Well, it means it's not in the book. <laughs> it's the guy sitting there, like if you're drywalling with a guy and he's been drywalling for 20 years. Yep. You can have gone through tech school and you or trade school and you know how to drywall, but he goes, hey, you know, do this and it's going to go a lot faster. You go, 
oh, yeah, that's not something that's going to show up in a book. That's yeah. that's literally the the hands hand to hand kind of work. Well, cooking when you cook with your uh, your parents or mm-hmm. your grandma or whatever. Sure. Big difference from reading in the recipe. Oh yeah. Just little thing like feel this, see how this you know little yeah. things, and that's the the physicality of work that we tend. I think we've lost or have dishonored mm-hmm. over time. Yeah. And that, that's what... And again, I think that's probably part of why the chefs have risen like they are, because they are the ones who have their, literally have their hands in the, in the muck. Yeah. And are creating something wonderful so people can identify, like, they're, they're, they're a magician. Mm-hmm. They're doing something I can't. Yeah. Even though they can. They but could, they just, totally. They don't know yet. Yeah. So anyway, that's, inter- that's very interesting. Um, oh, man, I totally just got lost. You were talking about... Oh man, that's right. Uh, chefs. Okay, here, here's what I was gonna say. I was gonna talk about uh, cooking because you you know you talked about cooking with your grandma or your parents being much different than cooking alone. Uh, I cook much more than my wife does, mm-hmm. um, and I I don't think I've ever followed a recipe. I've never. I'll occasionally go. I'll like look up, you know, such and such a recipe to see if I can do something like that. But then I won't read it. I'll just be like, okay, I just want to see what happens. I, I think that's something that's missing in. So I'm 27, 27, still pretty young, but. I feel like I could say I'm an old soul where like I, I'm not the typical 27 year old and, and I think most people in Madison aren't the typical 27 year old but there are a lot of young people today um, who don't go for the tricks of the trade uh, style learning because they don't have that this, okay so this is really roundabout whatever uh, they don't have that connection with people because they grew up in school you know I grew up in school with a teacher saying you have to do it this way this That's is right. the way you have to do it right but then they don't they're growing up in the iPad generation and the iPhone generation so that's their connection they're not learning from a person who would say, yeah, you could do it that way but here's another way that's totally viable and that will work and perhaps be better. <clears throat> And so then they get out of school and they go into the marketplace and they're just doing it by the book and all that. And uh, so like cooking, I think cooking is a good example because we've been talking about it. You go by the book, you literally buy the recipe book and you miss out. Like you're still cutting off that connection because you could totally make a connection. This is a very Zen thing. there's a connection with putting your hand on the skillet oh, yeah. and and cooking your own food and, and like coming up with your own style of doing things and way to do it that I, I really think is something that is very much lost. And I think you use the word dishonored. Yeah. It, and I think that's a really good way of saying it. Not that it's like um, a deliberate um, dishonor, but it's like uh, it's just been neglected. Well, there there is a deliberate See, this is... Okay. <laughs> I have this growing belief that you have a founder of a company, and then you maybe get one generation after. Sure. And after that, the soul of the company is gone. Because mm-hmm. no one starts a company... Well, I mean, some people now probably start a company just for money, but there's a, a, a person behind yeah. it, and it's their motives and their intense intensity that's driving this thing. Mm-hmm. And then usually they can pass it on to their managers or employees or kids or whatever to take it the next but then when that's gone now it's just this corporation that exists yeah 
and people are just kind of carrying that forward without the real personality behind it. Sure. And I think we start losing things. So what's happening now in the entire food industry, and you, anybody can go to any grocery store, from Willie Street Co-op to Whole Foods to Metcalfs down mm-hmm. to Cops, the number one leading growth sector in that grocery store is pre-cooked food. Yeah. So you walk in, you say, oh, what's for dinner? And you pick like eight things for four people in your family, and there's your dinner. <laughs> and that's supposedly this is, is progress. Yeah. But what you're missing is the common meal, the mm-hmm. common pot, someone putting the time and effort into cooking and all that. So we're going against that push. And it's not just, you know, convenience. A lot of people like it for the convenience yeah. and all that. And they're like, oh, they cook better than I do, and which I have, I don't believe. Um, but it's, it's, I believe it, it for some people. Well, <laughs> okay. Then you, go, or at then least, you can at, cook something. At least for certain things. Like, I, I don't have a rotisserie, so I couldn't make a rotisserie chicken. That's fine. You know what I mean? Right. That but you can make other things. Yeah. Oh, right yeah. Now. Absolutely. But, the, but those folks, you know, but what's happening is that message is being repeated over and over, including the celebrity chef shows, like cooking is hard, cooking, don't, don't waste your time with yeah. cooking, where it is one of the most fundamental things that it is being human. I mean, they, they tell us now learning to cook meat is what really made our brains yeah. Expand. Yeah. So we would literally would not be what we are now if we hadn't learned to cook meat. Yeah. So here at the carnivore, <coughs> here at the conscious carnivore, even though I know that's a driver, I won't let them do any pre-cooked food here. Sure. So we'll do things like crock pots. We'll do yeah. prep work and all, but it always requires you to go home and do cook something. It. Yeah. And then hopefully you can reverse engineer over time. But it just even that simple thing like that. Our crock pots are amazing because it's, I mean. You get a crock pot, you open the bag, you dump it, and you hit go. Yeah. But you see it as a raw product. You come back at the end of the day, and here's this beautifully cooked stew that it, you did. It's the easiest way to do something. Right. And then you go, yeah. oh, now what happens if I add extra potatoes or yeah. carrot? And now you can slowly start you know, adding to it. And then pretty soon, maybe you don't want our stuff, and you want to just do it yourself. That's you know, that's the, the point of yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that you did like you. So you prepare like a whole thing that you can just dump into a crock pot. Yeah, that's our that's our mom special. It's, awesome. Uh, I mean, I do it for our home, but it's you know, it, it, people are busy. Yeah. And but I want them cooking. So that was the one we came up with. It's like the easiest way. Like we have other prep stuff. You go home and fry or cook or this. But when you're just crazy busy, sure. Get it a day in advance or you know for the week and slice yeah. it open, drop it in, hit go. Yeah. There it is, and it's it's. I've, I've become such a fan of the Crock-Pot. I mean, they make amazing products. I mean, it's like the, the braising they always talk about. Yeah. The slow-cooked over low heat. And then you, you cook rice or you have bread or whatever you want to go with it. And you've got this just fantastic meal. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love my Crock-Pot. <laughs> my, my grandpa, my great-grandfather passed away and I got his Crock-Pot. Like, oh, that wow. was the one thing that I got. And I was so excited about it. Um, I actually just, my favorite thing to make in a crock I love stews uh-huh. sure. um, but I don't like stew beef very much I always think it's a little too tough so I buy steak okay. and, and cut it up for the stew um, I make uh, this is my dad I learned it from him it's a Guinness beef stew oh wow and so it's you just make it how you'd make a stew uh, and then like I use tapioca pudding for so, to thicken it and then you just dump in two cans of Guinness yeah, <laughs> and let nice. that, like towards the end and then let it get hot again. And yeah. it's, it's so good. That's great. Well, like we did one here, like I've been wanting to eat lamb for years. Mm-hmm. My wife, she's still mostly vegetarian, but really didn't want lamb. Yeah. But we, Dave put together a, um, 
a lamb crockpot dish. Okay. So I, I don't think I even told her. I think I just sure. went home and cooked it. <laughs> and so unlike in an oven where you really smell the meat really intensely, it's in the crockpot. Yeah. So it's just kind of a stew. And we had it. Everybody loved it. And yeah. it's like, so what was this? And I was like, well, it was the lamb. She's like, oh. So now we get to have lamb every couple of weeks. There you and go. All. So it just, it's an easy way to introduce a lot of things. A lot of vegetarians come here yeah. who understand the health issues they're having. Mm-hmm. So we get them started on soup stocks, on the, on the bone stock that sure. we have, or just very simple, um, more brothy kind of meat dishes because yeah. it's easier to digest and get started. And they almost always come back just glowing and happy. And we, you know, <laughs> Transition them to maybe some meat. That's right. You know, people joke about uh, you know bacon being the gateway drug. <laughs> but for, for And we have amazing bacon. But oh, it's, yeah. it's, I think it's bone broth is the gateway drug. Yeah. Your body starts absorbing that and it goes, yeah. You know, I, but I think for a lot of, uh, I know, I can think of one uh, vegetarian that I know who is a vegetarian purely because they want to tell people they're a vegetarian and have people go, oh, that's such a cool thing. Like, that's how cool of you to be a vegetarian, you know. Uh, and so I think there are a lot of vegetarians out there like that yeah. who then... Those kind of people would be the kind of people who would come here and be like, you know, I'm having health issues. I need protein. And then learn about what you're doing here and be like, oh, hey, this is just as cool of a thing. That's right. And probably more cool because it's legitimate. It's not a poser thing. You know, it's a real thing. And then would be like a champion for this style. That's what we see. We have lots of vegetarian, or what do they call them? I think Michael Pollan came a term flexitarian, or maybe it was Mark Bittman, one of those guys I follow, but uh, flexitarian. Yeah. It's just you're trying to be very mindful about what you eat. Yep. And up until recently, that meant you pretty much had to be a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. There was very few, unless you had a direct farm connection, there were very few options. And uh, so now that we're here, I don't want to say that excuse is gone because it's it's the sincerity they're reaching out for, but they have ethical options yeah. with meat eating. Yeah, and it's 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 been an evolution. I mean, we're vegetarian, you know, for years because there weren't these options. Sure. So it's uh yeah, it's an interesting thing. I, and I, again, I think it it comes to back to a connection. Yeah. Th- those flexitarians are looking yeah. to be a part of something. That's right. And then they find something like this, and it's mm-hmm. oh, this is legitimately being a part of something, and like. Uh, really getting plugged into a movement. It's not just uh, it's not just flattery. It's not just words, lip service. You know. Right. Uh, well, so one one thing I want to start. I actually want to start in my neighborhood, but I have to get through some of these nightmares first. But, sure. Um, I have this growing desire to create community-wide dinners. Yeah. Now. It's again. I love my chefs, but if you go to a place, it becomes this little bit of theater, and they're serving, and you can have great conversation and food. But there's something about having prepared the food together or, or sharing yes. that food that has a different thing. So I had this amazing meal at um, Sardine yep. with 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 the owner with the owners, or John and Philip. They invited us in because they were really getting into the local food thing, and we had this fantastic meal. And I really think what made it the most special is that they sat at the table with us and talked about the food and what the recipes were sure. and where it'd come from. And so we had this incredibly shared experience, not just enjoying each other's company, but the food was part of the conversation, was part of the table. Yeah. 
and like Thanksgiving coming up is, you know, you throw a butter, a pre-cooked butter ball that somebody did for you. Mm-hmm. What's that going to mean? Oh, we got a meal. Let's go sleep and then watch yeah. football. Versus, oh, this was Kyle Curley's. You know, oh, here's this turkey. I just spent eight hours cooking it. Yeah. And it was Kyle Curley's, and he's this young kid out of Iowa, Huge and I bought it at the Conscious yeah. Carnivore. And you don't have to be preachy, but just it's a cool story. Yeah. Well, it's I like a, cool a, a small example of that. I'm in charge of cranberry sauce this year. Okay. I can go buy the canned stuff and have it be this gross gelatinous cube. Yeah. But no, like I want, I've got cranberries. I'm gonna yeah. go home and make it, and yeah. you know, use the sugar and some lemon juice, like. And even if everybody ignores it or kind of like yeah. that, it's, it means a I lot still more made to you. It. Yep. And you bring that spirit and that presence there. Yep. So what I, what I want to do is, maybe I should start it here. I don't know, but I have a community of 120 homes where I live, my little neighborhood. Sure. It's a nice little size, but we still have all these weird political and just societal differences like any community does. Yeah. And everybody's always afraid to break those barriers. And I'm like, well, how cool would it be if we actually signed up and you had groups of four, mm-hmm. like four families probably are, and you committed over the course of four months to go to each other's house for one meal each. Yeah. And talk anything. Yeah. And everybody has to know it. Like, politics are on the table. Just be respectful. Be respectful, yeah. And you're sharing a meal. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated what would happen over the course of a couple of years as you did this. Yeah. If it would re- I mean, it would have to bond the community more. Absolutely. Either that or people are going to beat each other with baseball bats. But I tend to former. I think it's like you're going to have this higher level of understanding. I, I think you're totally right. I, I did something sort of similar. Um, with some guys I went to high school with had kind of faded away from the group or whatever and and wasn't really connected with any of them and then uh, went out to eat with one of them and it was a really good meal and I said, you know, let's do this thing where, like, one Friday a month, we get together with people and have one good meal. Mm-hmm. We call it Good Food Fridays. Okay. And it was just uh, me and three or four other guys. And so one month, we would go out to a nice restaurant. And then the next month, we would choose somebody's house. And each of us would prepare part of the meal. Mm-hmm. And those nights were always way better. Yeah. Because it's exactly what you said. Like, you're passionate about the thing you brought, and you can talk about it. And then, like, the like we've been friends since high school, but there's still differences among about, among us. Um, and it, there's something about sitting down with food that most of the time uh, brings civility, mm-hmm. uh, that you're able to talk about things that are could be potentially heated, but uh, th- there's something sacred about that, of sharing a meal that you help prepare, mm-hmm. that you're like, okay, like let's sit down and talk about stuff and like be respectful. Now, they talk about the horrors of Thanksgiving dinners, and I certainly had a few growing up, you know, with political debates or whatever, rah, rah, rah is going on. Yeah. But again, it's I'm trying to think back. In all those cases that I can remember, the people who were arguing were not the ones who made the meal. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's true. That's an interesting hypothesis. But, um, you know, it was the, you know, daddy and Uncle Buck and all that who sat back and were watching football. They get called to the table and they yeah. start yelling about whatever. And then they go back and watch football. See, I think that's more about those those uh, horror stories are more about being around your family. Your family. <laughs> See, and that, so last year at Story Slam, uh, right now we do one Story Slam a month. It's the last Friday of every month. And we do it at Johnson Public House. And uh, it just works out that in November, the last Friday of every month, or of November, is always the day after Thanksgiving. Oh, okay, sure. And uh, and so last year we did, like, worst family member was the theme. Uh, so, it, like, it was like, hey, go spend the day with your family and then go shopping the next day and that night come tell us about <laughs> your worst family member. And then this month, 
it, it just worked out. We, we let the audience at the previous month choose the theme. Um, this month's theme is family gatherings, where again, I have, the way I've promoted it and kind of uh, marketed it was go spend the day with your family, get sick of them, and come complain about them at Story Slam on Friday night. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I think I think those arguments are more about being around your family <laughs> than it is just other people. But there, it's you know, I, you know, all so the, the connect we have all these people coming in, getting their turkeys, and just yeah. seeing how much it means to them just to get something that has a story behind it to take to their families. Yeah, and everybody's so paranoid of things if you get it now more than ever. But it's just this reaching out. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I think that is. I think that's our theme. And, I mean, that's what our wall up here is. Our, our wall says, eat like we're all connected. Yeah. Um, anyway, people who haven't been in here, we have pictures of, started with our banker and contractors who are building the place out up to, you know, our butchers. And now it's um, all the customers who come through. So sure. it's, it's really trying to, you know, create a pictorial image of what we're doing here. But um, our theme for today has clearly been about the connection. Yeah. Because I mean, that is... 100% what I'm about. Yeah. You know, the butcher shop was, it's a systems approach and it's trying to use that for a greater cause. Totally. I'm not Dave. You know, I'm not, I didn't come yeah. out at 16 going, I want to be a butcher. <laughs> you know, I was a vegetarian and a lawyer and all these other things. So for me, it's just, it was the quickest, cleanest, most obvious way to start tying urban and rural and eaters with farmers and, yeah. and the whole community together, which which is incredibly ironic given that the village board, now it's not most of our neighbors, most of our neighbors are huge supporters of ours, but it was the village board and a few cranky neighbors who forced us out. Yeah. I, out I, of a small community. I was trying community. to read a little bit about it this <laughs> week uh, or this weekend and, and it really sounded like you guys went to the board, like they came to you and said, hey, enough is enough and you guys came back and were like, what? And, and then kind of said, okay, give us this amount of time. And then they're like, no. Yeah, it's it was weird. It's, I mean, that's a really simple that's way. That's a very simplified way. So they were trying to say we were a public nuisance because we'd grown in the size of our business. Okay. Even though, and, and I kept pointing out, remember, I'm a lawyer. The law says if we don't change what we're doing or change the footprint, we can increase production all we want. Sure. And by definition, you don't change your zoning. Yeah. And they kept saying, public nuisance, public nuisance. And they finally came up. And, and so we went back and forth. And then it got quiet. And I thought it was okay. And then they hit us with a bunch of tickets for public nuisance. And then we went to the um, uh, village board. And they said, all right, you got 90 days to come up with a plan to move the slaughter out of town. And I just remember being deflated. Like I had, a, I had 100 people at that meeting. I had all these supporters, all the farmers, community members, everybody, neighbors who were mm-hmm. like, these guys are great. I mean, like, the guy who lives across the street and has a direct shot to this whole thing is like, they're no problem at all. Totally. But they didn't, they just, you know, they did their own little They had their group. agenda. They had their agenda. And when they did that, that caused our USDA loan guarantee to go away. Okay. I was within two days of closing on this huge refinance. Yeah. And the USDA had to pull the guarantee. The bank had to pull its note. And so, even though legally I wasn't required, I did go out and get a grant and got an economic development team to put together four plans so the board could say, well, we like this plan. Sure. They'd go forward. And they didn't. Yeah. We presented all four. I said, I can work with any of them. You know, there's going to need to be some financial help. And there are all kinds of ways to do the financials with them. And they just 
looked stunned, and then they ordered their attorney to pursue legal actions against us. Huh. And it was like, what on? I mean, it was yeah. just shocking. Yeah. Absolutely shell-shocking. So that meant our financing went completely away, and we had the, you know, the bank held out its hand saying, well, we love you, but yeah. you owe us a lot of money, so pay up. Man. And of course, in the process, they took that building that had been appraised at $1.4 million, mm-hmm. and now I'd be happy to be able to give it away. Yeah. I mean, it's just just sitting there. Just poof, gone. Yeah. So it's that's that's the really frustrating part with all that I'm about building community and trying to get these connections going and you know, restore this trade as a noble trade. And, you know, I'm really trying. Yeah. I'm trying to be that, you know, idealistic entrepreneur and sure. make, make things better and just get slapped down like that for nonsense. Yeah. And, and the judge already threw out their public nuisance yep. and, and laughed at them in doing it. Just said, you know, they're completely absurd. Yeah. That doesn't help. You know, it's water over the dam. It's too late. Yeah. Um, so that's where, out of necessity, we reached out to our community saying, cause, and actually the community suggested to us saying, Kickstarter, Kickstarter, Kickstarter. No, they were they wanted to build a whole new plant and let's raise $1.8 million. I'm like, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's great. A big goal. That's a big goal. Let's just save our equipment. Yeah. That's, that's where we are. So we need some more help. We're about... With the investors willing to make up some difference, we're about mm-hmm. halfway there. We yeah. have 10 days to go, so we have until December 4th to hit another 60,000. But we have 62,000 raised yeah. and 650 people or something supported us. I mean, it's incredible. What's the, the, what's the total goal? 225 is the, is the total, but I've got investors. If we get close enough, they'll come in and make up the difference. Yeah, and is Kickstarter still, it's all or nothing? Yeah, it's all yeah. or nothing. Yeah. Which I then found out there's another one that's, you get partial back, but yeah. I didn't know about it at the time. I think time, Indiegogo so. yeah. does that. But that really seemed to me like a, you know, like artist stuff. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's the thing. We're kind of in a funny, a lot of people who do Kickstarter are used to basically they're prepaying for inventory yep. and then they just get the stuff anyway. Yeah. And we're in a different, we're like, no, no, we need the money. Yeah. I've had a few people complain like, well, your rewards aren't worth the money. I'm like, I just need the money. Dude. I disagree. <laughs> I, like I look through the rewards and like some of the, man, if I, if I had $2,500 to give, oh, like yeah. some of those chef things. Oh like, my God. There's some of them are crazy. That would be so awesome. Yeah. Dude. Like Nick Johnson threw down like five dinners where you spend the day with him in the kitchen yeah. and he puts together a tasty dinner for you and your friends. Yeah. Um, he's got other t- other special Where's chef he table. At? He's opening the Stam House. Yes, that's so right. Like, my, I think my, I, don't quote me, I think my wife's grandfather was the chef there okay. way back then. Oh, yeah. Like, long time ago. It's crazy, yeah. yeah. It's, it's historic and he's the perfect guy to get it going and he's totally jazzed so I'm excited to see that coming online. Yeah. Uh, you know, Shinji Morimoto put her thing, his thing out it was gone in like a day. Yeah. That would be... Awesome. <laughs> oh, there's just some amazing things out there. So, is is Tori Miller doing anything? No, I, I haven't. I never connected with Tori. I he I reached out to him about doing this uh, yeah. the same day that I talked oh. to you, and he said he might be interested. I'm still waiting to get it confirmed, but yeah, yeah. No, it's. I mean, Tori's a great guy, and it's just he's super busy, and we just we've yeah. never we yeah. never did business. We did a little bit of business together. So there are other people who are like just absolute champion. And honestly, one of the problems we've had is we have too many prizes sure. or whatever you call them. And I have I probably have forty more sitting in the wings. People are like, oh, we want to donate this. And I'm like, people can't get through it now. Yeah. You know, it's like we just need to get things rolling. So yeah. Anyway, for anyone who's out there listening, Kickstarter, Save Black Earth Meets. We got now's Absolutely. the time, man. Absolutely. How much time do you have left? I don't know. Can we go for a little bit while longer? Sure, I'm just chatting. All right. Uh, so, 
there's a couple questions that I always ask. Yeah. So it's Story Slam. Story Slam. Uh, or the Story Slam podcast. I want to know what's your best story that's not uh, Black Earth Meets Conscious Carnivore related. It, it sounds like you've led quite a life and kind of been all over. You were a lawyer. Did you say you lived in Hawaii? Yeah, we lived in Hawaii 13 years. And were you a lawyer out there? Yeah, that's where I got my law law license. Um, great community to practicing. So it's so small that if you screw someone over, they will remember it. For, the whole community knows. Yeah. So again, it's a community thing where people are much, I found from being here in Chicago, the lawyers are much more civil and focused on resolving cases than they are here. Yeah. Because that's your community. They will come back to you. Still and that word yeah. gets around. Yeah, it's really interesting there. My brother lived in uh, Kona, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Sure. And and then also Point Barrow, Alaska, which is the most northern city in the world. Oh, wow. Um, and he told me that at both of those places, it was very, if you are not a native, it, it's not a kind place to live in a lot of times. Right. Did you find that at all in Hawaii? There are certain areas you yeah. just know. It's a, Hawaii's, one, one of the interesting things about Hawaii is there's so many different waves of immigrants, the most recent being the, the Caucasians. Yeah. coming through and you have various socioeconomic statuses within them it's the I mean there's a plural there's there's no major, simple majority of any race mm-hmm. so everyone's a minority everyone picks on everyone so it can be very racist while at the same time being extremely open sure. about being racist yeah <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I don't know how to be, it's like everybody just understands, here's the way the world, and people move up and down a little bit, but there is yeah. a certain stratification there that is kind of preserved. So yeah. it's, yeah, so as a, as a Howley of foreign, especially a foreign Caucasian command, um, there are certain places you just don't go. Sure. Or you just know you're going to get a lot of grief for it. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, Hawaii is a pretty unique place. I, yeah. You know. Any good stories from Hawaii? I have a million good stories. So we, we hooked up with the, um, all right, so my wife and I landed from Asia, and in the first three days of landing, I think my mom put us up a hotel room, and it cost $900 for a week in the hotel Hold on. Room. Why from Asia? It's because, remember, I was in India? Yes. Okay, okay. yes. Yeah. So we, when we finished university, we traveled Asia, and we spent a year studying martial arts and meditation and different things. That's so it's so almost cool. like a pilgrimage kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, and then we ended up in Korea, where we were teaching English. Yep. And so Hawaii was just a continuation of that. There was an Aikido dojo in Hawaii we wanted to look sure. into. Um, and so we are going to be there for a year or two, and a year or two turned into 13 years. <laughs> As it usually does. It, right. It was pretty amazing. Um, and, and, but it literally was like, oh, okay, when you finish this, we'll go. And yeah. then something else would come up. And like, like I think she got into grad school, and then sure. I got sent to law school, and then she got an amazing job, and then I got a promote, you know. Yeah. And then it wasn't until Monroe, my son, was born that we finally went. Okay, another year or two means we're here forever. Yeah. So we're either here forever or, or we get out we're now. getting out now. Yeah. It's, it was it was pretty stark. And actually, the uh, the critical moment I remember looking down and we we're feeding him, and I realized everything on the plate came from mainland U.S. Oh wow! And there's this sense of food insecurity, I guess you'd call it, of like if something goes down, hurricane, dock workers strike. Yeah. Who knows? Um, there's not food on this island. Yeah. All the fish that's caught there get shipped to Japan. The fish that we ate got brought in from Tonga. All the huh. all the pineapples that are grown there get harvested and sent to the Philippines for canning. I mean, it's just it was this weird yeah. thing going on. Yeah. And so there's we actually tried to CSA for a while, but it just it was a 
Now it's a little better, but even so, there's just not much food grown there. Yeah. Which is so that that was actually the driver coming back. But so you flew in from Asia. Flew in from Asia. Your mom put right. You up in so a hotel. She, so it cost nine hundred dollars for a week in the hotel. Yeah. And by the end of the week, we had stumbled into. Did, so did you fly there without? You moved there without. Knowing we were moving there. It was literally a stop off. <laughs> oh, okay. I we'll see. be here for like, you know, let's check it out for a month or two. Okay, and yeah. Just, and we're gonna, thinking we're going to stay in a hostel. Yeah. But we landed, and my wife found a job right away, which is amazing. It's just, you know, like a temp job or whatever it was. But we went, oh, okay, so we had some level of budget. We found an apartment that was $900, $950 a month, and we found a car for 900 So... The cost of one week in the hotel was also the equivalent of a month in a flat yep. and a whole car. Yeah. I think it was a Subaru Justy, like yeah. a 1987 <laughs> Subaru Justy it was. That we literally, it would stop. I mean, we get to, it got so bad it would stop at a stoplight and die. So we'd have to jump out. One of us would push, push. and pop the clutch. Yeah. And then we got, I mean, it was, and we did that. We drove that damn thing for like four or five years. It yeah. was incredible. Yeah. Um, anyway, so this, I remember when we first walked up to this, place we were going to rent and it was an architect's house so he put on the side of one of the valleys sure so his actual real house was at the top of the the valley but he had owned the whole uh, vertical strip and so he had built this i think he built it thinking it was going to be his house and then he's going to make it his office and but he ended up renting it to some kid who'd come into some inheritance money or whatever and, yeah. that, and then all of a sudden he ran out of money and he's like, oh, my God, I need to come up with more money. But at the base of it, again, you're, you know, three stories up off the valley, um, was this maid's quarters, granny flat, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And so we, I remember walking up these staircases, and there's just jungle all around you on the side of this mountain. I mean, it's just the most gorgeous thing. And it's a very narrow, it's, it's probably only 600 square feet, but it's a very narrow, long, there's two rooms side by side. But the whole front was glass looking out over this valley. Yeah. And in front of it was the lanai. So it was about a three-foot wide, maybe a four-foot wide balcony, mm-hmm. I guess. So we spent all our time outside. So even though it was a tiny little place, we were outside. We put a little tiny little uh, outdoor table out there where we'd eat our dinners. But I guess this will be my story for you then. Sure. So we have this beautiful place, a beautiful thing. We're watching the sun go back and forth over the years because you know, we're facing due south. And, yeah. Or due, sorry, due west. Um, so watching the sunsets and just every meal is outside. But we have almost no money for food. And in Hawaii, they define a habitation as having a kitchen. And a kitchen is defined by having three things. A sink, an oven, a sink, wait, a sink, an oven, and a refrigerator. Okay. So what people would do to be able to rent out a space without being an illegal habitation yeah. was they put two of the three in. Sure. So in this long, skinny thing, we had in the back a little kitchenette that had a sink and a little bar fridge. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. So we had to buy one of those little electric plug-in heaters and all that. So here we are. We're living in this thing with a bar fridge, and we, we were cooking. We were poor. Yep. So we were cooking all of our own food. I mean, we also like food. Yeah. And so we had to organize our buying because we only had enough refrigerator space to hold two or three days at a time. Mm-hmm. So we got used to going to the local co-op, buying just enough. We knew exactly what we needed to buy for our meals. We knew what our meals were going to be, what lunches we need. Yeah. And we packed things. And we had 
if you know those bar freezers or fridges, there's zero freezer space essentially. Yep. So I think we'd have like one thing of frozen vegetables, one thing of frozen fruit, and that was like it. That was 100% our freezer. Yeah. So it changed the way we thought about shopping and cooking because we had to. And that very immediate thing. Yeah. And that has, I mean, we still do it. We got, you know, now we got a chest freezer and all. I mean, I've got all this food around me, but it's still, we map out exactly what we're eating for the entire week, when we shop, how we shop, what yep. we buy. So we have almost no food waste now. I'm hearing all these things about food waste, food waste. I'm like, go live in Hawaii for three days where groceries are four times what you expect them to be. And yep. you've got this, you know, pitiful little wage in a tiny fridge. That's how you get rid of food waste. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> My dad does this thing uh, where if he's, I, mean, he, I don't think, he just does it all the time. Yeah. He'll come to a certain point where he's like, I'm not buying any more food till I eat everything that's in the house. Yeah. And then he'll, for a month, we'll just kind of scrounge and be like, okay, well, today I'm going to eat yeah. these noodles that I found. Yeah. And then oh, like, look, putanesca again. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I have said oftentimes to my wife, I love the European way of shopping, grocery shopping, where every day yeah. you go to the corner, and like every corner has a corner store, and you buy what you need for that day. You buy right. a quart of milk and a few eggs or whatever, you know? Right. I, I wish America was like that. I, we need to be a lot more relaxed in this society than we are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We need to just calm down a little bit. Like in, Instead, we do Costco. I, yeah. I need all the beans I need for the next three years. Yeah. See, I hate myself. <laughs> because I, it's supposed I to be a good. Co- it's supposed to be a good company yes, to work for. Absolutely, but I also look like. So the first time I was ever really in Costco was last year. I was visiting a friend in Seattle, and her mm-hmm. family is very much Costco loves Costco. So we were going there for grocery shopping, and I, I remember I took a picture of myself and, and put it on Facebook, and I was like. Uh, I'm in the center of everything that is wrong with America right now. (laughs) And so, like, I feel like such a traitor that, like, now I work... Like, it's just seasonal, but, you know, I needed money, so I had to do it. You know, if you were at Walmart or a place that really drives wages down, I would agree with you. Yeah. Costco's made a stance and a principle. They are trying to pay better for the people, and you've got to, I mean, absolutely have to respect that. And I do. Yeah. 100%. I just... I hate seeing people come in and going, you know, like oh, you said, all the beans for the next three yeah, years yeah, yeah. that I need. I'm going to spend money on that for yeah, some reason. The hyper-consumerism of it. Right? Yeah. That's what they say if you want to freak out with anybody from Eastern Europe. I don't know if it's still true, but um, when the wall was falling or in that thing, you know, there was this whole thing, like, we're better than you. and all. Mm-hmm. They said, all you have to do is bring them and walk them into a Costco. <laughs> and it's just, that was it. Yeah. It's like, wait, I, my good friend, uh My good friend, his... He was born in Germany. His dad's American. His mom's German. So when his mom family comes to visit him here in Madison, uh, I remember he told me the thing that they were so flipped out about it was like Oscar Mayer hot dogs, like a package of hot dogs. Yeah. They're like, you can't get this in Germany. This like you can just go to the store and have a package of twelve hot dogs. That's insane. And so like they brought back packages. Oh of wow! Hot dogs. <laughs> like that was the big souvenir that yeah. they thought was amazing. Sure. I don't know. We take a lot a, of stuff for it, granted. We take a lot for granted. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever be excited about Oscar Mayer hot, hot dogs in a package. Until you're starving. Like I, Spam, right? Hawaii loves Spam because yeah. that was the only meat they had during the war. So yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Um, another thing I always ask, and this, interpret the question however you want to. Okay. Um, I... Uh, I always ask, who is the coolest slash most interesting person in your phone? Like, if I was walking down the street and, and found your phone and scrolled through it, who is the most interesting person that I could call? 
And so uh, one person's answer, we had Tom Farley on the podcast. His answer was Quincy Jones and Adam Sandler. Yeah. Uh, our last guest, his uh, his answer was his best friend from high school. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I think my, my dad's still in there, but he passed a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. He was really cool and quirky. Um, just classic gentleman. So I don't, it doesn't count because you can't actually call him. So yeah. Unless you want to do a seance. Um, <laughs> I know I got all kinds of interesting things in here. I've got, you know, Paul Kahn down in Chicago. Anybody who's in the Chicago restaurant scene knows Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Nyman out in California. I was um, really hoping you were going to stop at Nye. Just Bill Nye. Bill Nye. No, I don't know the <laughs> science guy. No, I'm afraid not. Um, I don't I, it's you know my contact list is weird especially now that they've absorbed you know with sure. all the technology all these things so anybody who's emailed me once or whatever ends up in my contact list yeah. so I know there yeah. are things in there I'm like oh wow that's that's pretty interesting but you know, for, I, I guess the answer is for you like if, yeah. if you were going to call somebody and and it guaranteed you're going to learn something interesting you're going to have an interesting conversation whatever who are you calling um I mean, I'd probably say Woody Tash. He's the founder of Slow Money and is a big, big thinker. He's very much a philosopher. Okay. You know, and he travels the world, and he's he's really, he's an idealist idealist. Mm. I mean, I don't always agree with him with everything he does and all that, but he is, he's the guy you want at a salon session. He's sure. the guy you want to have it at a dinner party because he is actively putting himself way out there in his thought process and his, what he's trying to propose and being exposed to a lot of ridicule just from, you know, the, the capitalist markets. Yeah. Because um, he's trying to argue that, I mean, he, he's, the message has come across, we need to find a way to support local food systems locally mm-hmm. at a smaller scale. But I think that's really just the metaphor for him for saying, our whole investment scheme is really bad, yeah. and it's about to crash. And so he talks about money, just the way we're using money, it's spending faster and faster and faster and is ready for a crash, and no one's paying attention. Yeah. So he, they will pay attention to when he talks about food, because everybody, everybody understands food, right? Yep. We sit here, we and we understand if we don't support this, you know, like this, okay, we got a cool butcher shop we're in. If people don't support it, it's not going to be here. Mm-hmm. Okay, everyone can understand that. But if he says, but if you invest in the stock market without really knowing those companies, all you're doing is investing in this thing, trying to create more money just for the sake of more money. money yeah. And there's no real connection between money and values anymore. And so he's really out there against all the mainstream thinking. Yeah. And so you get the most interesting conversations and discussion and thought process thought processes from that. Yeah. So I would have to say he would be the most interesting person in my phone. Yeah. That's a good answer. I mean sounds like the kind of guy who, you know, sitting down and sharing a meal with would be uh, that that's a conversation that could go everywhere. Yeah. Especially, oh, yeah. I, I think especially for someone like you who is so involved uh, in what you're involved in. Well, actually, for anyone, like the one of the first ones that really struck me when we we're talking about it was he was trying to he's trying to get the, they're called PRIs, programming, PRI, programming related investments. Mm-hmm. So there are all these trusts out there. Like so, the one he used was the Bill and Melinda Gates trust. Yeah. 
and people get very excited. They sound cool. And he said, the problem is they're split into two divisions. You have the division that has all the money it's holding on to, and its job is to make as much money as possible sure. for the charitable cause. Yep. And then they give that money over to the charitable cause that gives the money away. Yeah. So even aside from you have a private entity making world-changing decisions, um, you have a fundamental problem in that often the investments they're making don't match what they're doing. What they're doing. So the example he gave... I've never thought of that. Right, so this is going to blow your mind. So yeah. the Bill and Melinda Gates, they're really focused on Africa. Yep. And the primary place they were focusing, at least in this early period, was in what northwestern Africa, the Nigerian oil fields and all that, because just there's this poverty and destitution and just the whole society was getting racked. And this yeah. was before Ebola in that area hit. But, I mean, it's just, it was a mess. Mm-hmm. And then they found out one of the main holdings beyond Microsoft in the trust was the Nigerian oil fields. Because huh. that's where they're getting the biggest returns yeah. and there's that amount of money. So they were investing in the very thing that was causing the problem they're trying to solve on this end. And he went to him and said, well, why don't you just, instead of going for your 50% return or whatever they're trying to get out of the, the oil field so you can give, you know, then you collect 10% off and you give 40% over here. It's like, why don't you reduce it and just go for, invest directly in the villages and try yeah. to get a zero return yeah. that you're using your money to actually help directly. And that was a, a thing he tried to get across to the big institutions and the big trusts. Like, put your money where your beliefs are. Yeah. Don't just raise the money and then think that it was divorced ethically from your actions. And so that's the kind of, and it really bothers people when you start talking to them because they, they, the, the people who are supposed to be making money, that, that's, that's their box. And yeah. they can't get out of that box. Yeah. I, believe me, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've never been super money focused. I, I just, um, probably to a fault. I just, you know, money, to me, money is cyclical. Sometimes you have it, sometimes you don't. Uh, I went to a private school uh, and knew a lot of people who went out of high school and got business degrees to become wealthy people, which is great. I, like, I, I don't really have that goal in my life, but... I remember hearing one of them, we were like at a, it wasn't like a class reunion, but it was like everybody was home from college or something and we were hanging out and somebody said, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? She's going to become a doctor. Like, that's too bad. And I was like, well, how do you mean? And they said, well, she's not going to make very much money. And, oh, yeah. And I said, I don't know, like doctors make like $100,000 a year. Like, that's a lot of money. And they were like, that's not very much money. And their first year, they'll only make like 70 grand. And I grew up on a pastor's salary. Yeah. And so like 70 grand a year, I was like, are you kidding me? I know. That, that's insane. Uh, so the people whose whose mind is, you know, we're here to make money, that, that very much is where they're at. And, right. and it's one of those things, at the end of the day, what do they have? Yeah. It's always this little thing, like the person with the most toys when you die wins. It's like, yeah, but you still died. You did. Yeah. yeah, you're still you know, gone. Like, you're still gone. It's like, it's the experience. And what they, they did this, the studies on this, like with Christmas and things like that, it's like giving people things yeah. has a very short bump in happiness, but giving people experiences lasts a very long time. Totally. And so it's all about, again, experiences, sharing, the warmth and all that. It's that community. We're, I mean, we're biological creatures, mm-hmm. you know? So it's the, it's the raw and the messy and the, the, the dirty and the hugs and all that. That's what makes us happy. Yeah. That's what we're programmed to make, make us happy. Yeah. I, I have very few things that I often think about. 
I have very many experiences that I look back fondly and treasure. Mm-hmm. You know, I I have so many things that I have lost and thought, oh, I wonder where that thing is. Oh, who cares? Yeah. And and then again, I have experiences where I'll probably never do this experience again, but like I relive it all the time because I can think about it. And uh, I like that idea. Like, let's be less focused on the thing aspect and like let's do stuff I, you know uh, do you know the comedian Nick Offerman at all he's an actor no um, he is very much um, of the his movement right now his movement uh, is do stuff with your hands he he's an actor and comedian but he has a wood shop in LA where he builds all the stuff he does hand carved canoes and all that kind of stuff and um his, his current book is called Paddle Your Own Canoe. And it's just basically, hey, get out there and do stuff. Stop sitting on the couch and watch other people do things. Like, right. get out there and do it. Uh, I think people today are just too um, comfortable and satisfied to watch other people do well, things. Well, and you got to remember, everything people watch or read or like, any any Facebook, any YouTube, any of that is showing someone who's done some extreme thing. Yeah. Or the perfection after years of practice. Well, you're not watching the practice. You're watching the finished result. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, I can't do that. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Isn't that amazing? But then you have this. But at the same time, it sets up like, oh, I couldn't possibly. Yeah. I mean, even think like, uh, like my son's starting to learn viola. Sure. And if you start out by looking at the orchestra people and going, okay, you're going to do that, and then you start playing, you're going, screw this, and yep. you give up. Yep. But they luckily don't. They start them out like listening to high school guys, and they yeah. go, oh, I'm okay. You know, and it's like, you just, you have to just see, you have to, it's almost like achievable goals, but because of the media, everything out there is perfect. Mm-hmm. Everything's Kim Kardashian or whatever her name is. Yeah. Right? Which I, I still don't get that one at all. But <laughs> I don't, I don't anyway, either. but it's, everything is perfect and everything is bigger and all that. And so it's, it's almost like a, a psychologist designed it as a way to make us crazy. Yeah. Cause what, what they did all this thing, what makes you happiest is to be a little bit better than the person next to you. That's what makes you happiest. Huh. I mean, you know, in a community yeah. and things like that, but it's like if I have, like, I've got the iPhone 6, and oh, you only have the iPhone 5. Yeah. I, hey, I got that. Seriously, there's you know like this so whole funny? psychology thing. When I thing. sat down, I saw your 6. And, and you got like, jealous. I've got, no, I've got the oh. 6 Plus. Oh, okay. And I thought, well, I've got the 6 Plus. So. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it, 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 I swear to God, there, that's that's what they said. It's like the number one thing after you get past, you've got enough food to yeah. eat and shelter on. It's like if you just have a little bit better. But in our society with the media, Everybody's better because yeah. all you do is turn on the TV. Everybody's prettier, richer. Mm-hmm. You know, they better skin. I mean, it's all about terror. So that's part of this. This fundamental thing is this media cacophony we have around us is making us afraid and react to this image of perfection. So now we are becoming paralyzed. Yeah, we're afraid. Um, we're scared. We well, are and disconnected, that, and we don't want to do anything. That plus the instant gratification generation that exists, where it, the Google generation, mm-hmm. where you're not. I can learn anything. Like we said, I can go to Google and type it in and immediately know the answer. Or an answer, not or, so. Yeah, yeah, an answer. Um, and so, like, you you know, you're talking about the perfection in media and, like, people want that and are not that and they don't understand why they can't immediately be that. Yeah. Uh, no wonder people are depressed. It's true. Yeah. I, absolutely. I, I fundamentally think that's a huge part of what we've got going on. Oh, what is going on? Is that a train? I don't know what that is. Oh, there's a train behind us. Oh, well, oh, that's weird. It happens. It well, might be well, a good good time to end. Indeed, I think so. Um, 
plug your Kickstarter one more time for me? Yeah, it's Save it, Black save? Earth Meats okay. on Kickstarter.com. Oh, that's good until December 4th. And then everybody come by the Conscious Carnivore on University Avenue. This is... Is our, you, know, you walk in here, you will see my brain. Yeah, there's a lot of good meat in here. There's a lot of good everything in here. It's good, I, there's good stuff. something about raw meat yeah. that, you know, obviously it makes me hungry, but then it's like, you just feel... You just feel like a man. Like you just, you're totally human when you're in here because you're like, all right, I want to cook all of this and eat it right That's now. Right. Um, so well, everybody, go out, uh, find a friend, have dinner with each other, and uh, share stories. Absolutely, come to Conscious Carnivore and, and get dinner, and then or get food and cook it and make it dinner. Go. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Bart. Thank you, Adam. This is um, great. Absolutely. Come back anytime. I'd love to have you on yeah. anytime if you ever have any time or whatever. Uh, again, our next Story Slam is this coming Friday, November 28th. Our theme is family gatherings. Um, if you're not doing anything after Thanksgiving, come on out. We're at Johnson Public House. Sign-up starts at 6 and stories start at 7. Um, we will be recording that for the podcast. And hopefully you can come out and tell a story. Again, thank you so much, Bartlett. It was a great, great. time having you here. Thanks, Adam. Yep.